Do you know what today is? It's January 31st, 2019. Do you know what that means? It means that you have 15 days to get your order figured out and submitted to Bounce Athletics for your premium camp soccer balls if you want to take advantage of free shipping and 10% off. If you host a soccer camp for a high school, a college, a club, whatever, these are the balls that you want to provide for your players. Bounce Athletic Soccer Balls are fully customizable, which means you can get your school or your club or your camp logo right on the balls that you order. Bounce Athletics has micro-stitched, textured, premium camp soccer balls for under $9 per ball. And these are the same camp balls that are used by major D1 college programs like Wake Forest, Creighton, Texas Tech, Michigan State, just to name a few. Now, if you don't get your order in before February 15th, 2019, no problem. The world isn't going to end. You can still get cheap ground shipping, which adds just a little bit to the price of each ball. So don't freak out. Just email info at bounceathletics.com to start the order process or to just inquire about their products and mention 343 to get your 10% off your first order. And just keep in mind that Bounce Athletics has a wide array of products, including the balls that I just talked about, but also vests and my personal favorite, the folding dynamo goals. I highly recommend checking those out. So you can find all of that at bounceathletics.com. This is the 343 Podcast. I'm your host, John Pronich. Welcome to the show. Jared Embick is the men's soccer coach for Akron. And you might be familiar with them because... They are one of the best teams in men's college soccer. Jared has been at Akron for more than a decade now. And during this conversation, we talked a lot about how he has implemented a very, very specific style of soccer in a, I'm hesitant to say this, in a, in a rough landscape. So college soccer is not the easiest place to have a possession-based identity and somehow, some way, Jared has been able to instill one at Akron. So we talked a lot about how he got started there, how things used to work between him and Caleb Porter, who was the coach that brought him on board there, how things are a little bit different now. And towards the end of the conversation, we actually got into some of his thoughts and my thoughts about college soccer specifically, about what's missing, about what needs to be changed, his views on where college soccer stands in the entire American soccer landscape. And I was really surprised with all that. And I'm super stoked that I got a chance to talk to Jared about it. So just buckle up for this episode. It's a really good one. Um, if you want to support this podcast, yes, this podcast that you are about to listen to, you can do that by signing up for the 343 Premium Coaching Membership. It is the online program that provides you with a proven possession-based methodology and allows you to study and learn from one of the best coaches in American soccer. And the best part about the program is that you learn how to recreate that possession-based identity in your own environment, 
And the only reason that I say that is because I have firsthand experience with doing that. That's exactly what I did. I took what I learned from 343 and I recreated it in my own environment. And I've watched so many other coaches do that as well. And what you get with the membership, the tools that you get with it that enable you to do that are these. I'm going to read off a list right now. Uh, The membership includes videos of real training sessions, real matches. You get videos of the core activities to help you start coaching that possession-based soccer. You get ebooks, audio lessons, recorded presentations, and clinics. And you also get forums for networking and sharing ideas with other 343 coaches. And you get all of that for just $295, which is a steal. That is a fraction of the price of any other license in American soccer. You can go ahead and compare and, and look up all the other stuff. 295 is a fraction of the cost of all the other stuff that is out there. Don't even try to argue with me about that. You can find all of the information about the 343 Coaching Education Membership and all the details, all the benefits by visiting 343coaching.com. Once again, you find all the details and sign up today by visiting 343coaching.com. All right, let's get into this episode. I'm super stoked about this one. I hope that you enjoy it. Um, Yep, let's get into it. I hope you enjoy this episode with Jared Embick. All right. I don't know if I if I kind of gave you a, a timeline for the the conversation for today, but I was hoping to get maybe like 30, 45 minutes. I don't know if that's if that's too much or not enough. Yeah, that's not a problem. Okay, cool. Uh, anything that's anything that's off limits? Um, not not that I can think of. All right, perfect. Well. Uh, it's recording already, so I guess we can just kind of roll with that if nothing's off limits and, and see where the conversation takes us. All right. Cool. Um, I want to I start actually by saying that I saw you and your staff in San Diego over the summer, last summer, and I knew it was you guys, and I wanted to come up and, and ask you at the time if you wanted to be on the podcast, I, and, and I thought about you know just walking over the table and introducing myself, and I should have, but you guys were there and you guys were very, uh, you guys were very, uh, I don't know the right word. You guys were, it it looked like you guys were intensely watching the world cup game that was on the TV (laughs) and I didn't want to interrupt you guys. I can't remember what game it was, but it was that little sports bar that was, you know, like five minutes from, from the complex. And, and I was kicking myself the entire time. Like, ah, you know what? I should have done it. And and I'm usually not a shy person. I just, uh, yeah, for whatever reason I, I didn't go over and introduce myself and, and then, you know, the next season ensues and you guys make it to the final and I'm down in Santa Barbara and I, and I watched the, I watched the game and, and again, I was just kicking myself. Like I, I, you know, I should have taken advantage of that time in, in San Diego and I probably should have went up and, and said something in Santa Barbara, but here we are on the phone. So it's, it's all working out. Yeah. Yeah. In the future, just, uh, say hi anytime. <laughs> you know, we, uh, I always like talking about the game and, and that. So, uh, you know, don't have to worry about interrupting us in the future. Yeah, no, and and, and you know what? It, it was refreshing to see you guys at that sports bar taking time out of the day to, to you know make sure to go and watch the World Cup games, and, and I didn't see very many other coaches doing that. Um, 
there there certainly wasn't very many other other coaching staffs in the bar um and I, I think I went there like two or three days and I saw you guys two or three days in a row um but also it was refreshing to see that you you and your staff were actually at the same games that I was watching at the at the DA playoffs so like it, it was kind of like all right well you know these guys know what they're looking for so that was that was yeah. kind of cool too yeah no I like watching uh the games you know I try to watch as much I mean I think that's uh you know key part of learning is seeing what coaches are doing and you know how they're doing it and you know usually most times I take a notepad and just write down times of stuff that I see that I like but uh you know, all my notes were with recruits that weekend. So, yeah, I just kind of relaxed during the World Cup games. I think at that time, <laughs> that's cool. Um, all right, I, I want to get a a sense of how you got to the place that you're at now, and and I know that you started out at a, at a much smaller school than than Akron. You were there when Akron kind of, you know became uh I, I don't know is powerhouse the right word or, or kind of just like a staple and in, in in college soccer you know postseason uh, I, I'm not sure the right way to describe it maybe you can describe it differently and then you know you you were there when when that kind of transition happened when yeah. Caleb was there and then eventually you took over and 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 that tradition of of kind of excellence has has continued with you so I want to kind of explore all those options and then what I really want to you know, get down to with you is how your coaching style has changed from when you, you know, had your first college coaching job to the way that your team plays now. And what were some of the big factors and in, in how that changed over the years or, or, or some of the big factors of, of, or what's the right way to ask that? Like what were some of the biggest impacts on your, your yeah. coaching style and, and, and methodology and things like that? So uh, yeah. maybe, yeah. maybe a brief introduction from you and then, and then we can kind of just go from there. Yeah, yeah, you know, uh, uh, basically for me, I, I just started as a average player, you know. I, I think as I look back, you know, when I grew up playing, it was a little bit more of me put friends at the park, you know, kind of play 3v3, 5v5, whatever you get. And then uh, high school was, you know, for me, uh, not as enjoyable in terms of, uh, style of play but it was uh, very good for me in terms of mentality and, and what it takes I mean we did fitness set pieces you know scrimmaging so I didn't really know the game I, I wouldn't say I really learned much about the game until I started studying it as a coach so I, I don't really think I ever had a shot as a player but despite that I was I was pretty average um, but I just started a small school in St. Louis just because I was just small school player so it was probably easily easier job for me to get and um you know it was Missouri Baptist University and uh we did the men and the women you know and uh the my head coach there is Juan Pablo Severo he's now the head women's coach at Oakland he's from Argentina so I think you know as you talk about people that had a big impact he he was one um with his style of play uh, very tack minded and with him I was responsible for the defense. And uh, you know, he liked fifty five two, you know, back then and we played three five two with the women and four four two with the men. Uh, but he kinda helped me, 
you know, with some passing patterns, the creativity part of the game, the build up. Um, you know, at 24, I became head coach when he left. I took over for the men. Um, and then during that time, I was coaching for uh, Metro, which is now St. Louis, got Gallagher, Illinois. And that's where I met Dale Shirley and Dave Fernandez. And then that's how I got connected to Caleb, to those two guys. Um, they kind of set me up at uh, Indiana camp. So essentially what I tell people is, uh, you know what, I woke up, we were we were training a team at 7 a.m. And then you'd go through your train, you'd go to the office, do your recruiting work, scouting, all the other administrative duties. Then we'd train the other team about three. And then I'd leave from that and uh, five nights a week, and I'll either go watch a high school game or I'd have club practice. So I was working, and I'd get back home about 8 or 9 p.m. every night um, or later for about, you know, the first five years of coaching. You know, for me, that was crucial. It was crucial to, as an assistant to coach club and work on my own ideas and the communication man management style. But uh, it was in the end of camp where I met Caleb. Um, you know, he was kind of my coordinator, and I was just running drills under him. And, uh, you know, we just kind of chatted and took a liking to him and, you know, I looked at it from a point of, you know, he's coached and played at Indiana, one of the best programs, if not the best program in the uh, history of college soccer. I was like, you know, i got to be able to learn something. So I just went to him and um, just talked whenever they had some breaks or that. I just tried to learn how they do things, what what's important to them. And, you know, kind of struck up, you know, at least a mutual respect for what, we, what each of us knew. And then... Uh, guess when he had an opening, he thought of me for some reason. I don't know why, but um, I'm sure he had a lot of other good candidates. But he took a chance on me, and then I just came and worked with him, I think, in 2007. So um, that's kind of how I got my big break. And I just tell people, look, you know, if you're dedicated and you work hard and, you know, you have talent and uh, – you know, eventually somebody's going to see that or somebody's going to be willing to help you put you in a situation to where maybe you can catch a break. I think that's what happened with myself, with one, you know, Pablo Favaro, Dale Shirley, Dave Fernandez. I think those three were really helpful in my start of the career. So that's kind of how I got there. Um, you have any questions on kind of some of that stuff? Or Yeah, no. Uh, I'm curious about, how your your coaching ideas and your 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 coaching style your coaching philosophy matched up with Caleb's at the time like were you guys a perfect match were you guys uh good supplements for each other did you guys both bring you know different things to the table or did you guys just completely agree on on everything and 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 that's what made that program so strong at that point in time um and, and, and maybe, you know, what were you still learning as a, as a young coach? Cause if I, if I'm putting the timeline together correctly, you must've been like around 30 years old when, when you landed with, with Caleb or maybe just, just before 30. Um, yeah, I was, uh, I think I was 27, 28. So still and, a young uh, coach. Yeah. Really young. I think still to this day, I think that's young. I think, you know, 
you know, they look bad at my time with Caleb. We were, we were really good compliments for each other. Um, in a lot of ways, personality, strengths in terms of on the field, like, um, you know, essentially what I was in charge of when I was there was the attack. You know, Caleb would do the defense, you know, uh, and then with Caleb, that's where I learned a lot more how to press teams better. Um, you know, not just keep them organized in good shape, but also how to, you know, have good shape and press out of it and, you know, really, uh, you know, kind of dictate to teams from the, that side of the ball. But I was in charge of the build-up. You know, I worked with a lot with the attacking players and getting them coordinated. And then it was recruiting and scouting from the other big ones. And uh, from a personality standpoint, you know, as you guys have seen with Caleb, he's very intense. Um, you know, can be pretty demanding, um, those things, and which is really good. And I was just kind of a calm, uh, a little bit quieter, more, you know, and I had some confidence and uh, knowledge, you know. So I think as he sometimes would get wound up with the intensity or emotionally, I can be a calming influence to help him <laughs> kind of regain his, his uh, you know, demeanor and thought process and games. Um, you know, what I learned from him was off the field. His man management is really good. Um, how he runs an organization or that is excellent. Um, you know, and you really, when you work for him, you really have to come ready, you know, with your, your job. You can't just kind of BS your way through it. You need to be prepared, have a good thought process, be able to explain yourself. Um, you know, you have to do, basically, you got to do your job like you should at a high level. Um, and you do that, he's great. Yeah, I loved working with, with him and, I guess, for him. Um, and he really just helped me on as a coach, you know. Here's all your avenues. Let's be really ultra-detailed and prepared. And, you know, I've kind of carried that over. I'm, I, I want to ask what your influences were for how you structured the attack during that time. Cause it sounds like the job was kind of just cut up into pieces and, and maybe, yeah. maybe there were even more coaches than, than, than you and Caleb. I'm not sure exactly how many people you had on the staff and what the responsibilities were, but what, what were, what were some of the influences on how you wanted to build up or how you wanted to attack and what, what did you have to get approved by Caleb first before you did in practice or, or did you have kind of free reign to, to structure that however you wanted? How, how did that dynamic work? Yeah. I mean, I think, um, you know, if we, if I take a step back, I probably left this out. I mean, I, I think with the other thing with Caleb and I is we both kind of, that was his first head coaching job. So I think we both were kind of working through the philosophy of what we wanted. Um, you know, as he saw what I can do in the attack and how I work, I think he came to me. He's like, Hey, you know, I want to press high. I like how we're playing in the attack and build up, you know, is there any teams we can kind of study, you know, like, yeah, of course, Barcelona, Ajax, those are the first two I mentioned. And I, you know, we kind of worked through like a lot of stuff from Louis van Gaal, um, you know, like, before I was at the beginning of Pep's reign at Barcelona, so it was perfect timing for us to, uh, you know, learn. So we kind of watched that, but, you know, I kind of always um, 
told him, look, for me, it's you, you structure your attack and you build up to get into the final third more times than your opponent with control of the ball because then you have a better chance to maybe do what you want with it. So if we build it up right, then we can get in situations in the final third, hopefully with, you know, a lot of numbers high, maybe, you know, 3v2s, 2v1s, attack with speed, um, rather than, you know, the common thought sometimes, I think, when people think of college soccer, get numbers in an area and lump a ball there, win and fight for a second ball. I was like, well, you know, to me, that doesn't make sense logically to win consistently um, because you just don't have control of the game. And a lot of it's going to be determined on the physical qualities or the work rate of your players. And like, if you have skilled players, technique and their brains, then you can just plan it. So, okay, why don't we just plan how we get to the attacking half? And you're really good at the defending side on how we can lock teams in. I'll organize the front players and the build up. And then at the end of the day, we just got to get some of the guys that individually can do it at moments for us. Uh, so that's kind of how that started. Um, you know, like I said, uh, uh, you know, my first coach, Juan Pablo Favero, uh, had a lot of influence on that growing up in Argentina. Uh, you know, I think he played as a youth player to um, Estudiantes. Um, so we had some of that. And then, you know, Dale Shirley, Dave Fernandez uh, were key. And then, uh, you know, and then you just kind of, you know, I think what you do with a lot of things, you watch teams, you like how they play, then you study it. And you can't necessarily be a fan. You got to you gotta ask questions. You got to look into answers. You got to, you know, thankfully in this day of internet, you can get some information and then you, you try to go meet real coaches. So um, Caleb and I, I think, started to go to Europe the 2009, 2008, and then just watch teams for the week. You know, we've seen Bielsa. Um, you know, we've been there. I've seen him for two weeks. We did that and just watched the real guys work. And, you know, the opportunity to get a chance to meet someone, you continue to ask questions and better your philosophy. I want to go back to something you mentioned earlier, and it was when you were first an assistant coach and – you had this this guy from Argentina who had a completely different upbringing than you did and, and had been exposed to a whole different game than you had. You had mentioned that you know high school soccer didn't really teach you teach you much soccer. Um, it, it was more about mentality and things like that. But I think one thing that you mentioned earlier was that you started to see patterns or you started to learn patterns and having having the chance to watch Bielsa and study Barcelona and, and things like that. I'm curious to get your thoughts on, on patterns and, and what, what that word might even mean to you. Um, how, how, how do you, how do you use that word or how do you use that phrase and in, in, in your coaching today? Yeah. You know, they, they call it in South America, you know, he'd be like, let's go do possession. Um, and then we'd walk out and I'm thinking, all right, we're going to split up two teams of eight or whatever. And just keep away, you know. No, those guys will start the ball from the back and work it to the goal with no opposition. What we call patterns, they sometimes call possession drills. Um, you know, for me, I, I think those are important. Um, 
And when I watched Bielsa, it kind of really hit home because he does it in such great detail, smaller numbers, bigger numbers. Um, and he almost ruins practices like you would imagine if you want to watch the NFL team. How they'll just get the offense, they'll run through their plays with no defending opposition, get the timing down, get the rolls down, get everybody that. And then when they feel like they have all that, then great, let's bring second team defense or something. You know, a little bit less time to go against, figure it out, and then you continue to fine tune the details. Um, that's how I kind of, for American people, they relate to that, that football side better. Um, we, we do patterns a lot at Akron. Um, I think it's a great way to organize the attack. Um, the key, though, is, you know, you gotta got to be demanding about the, the technical level, the speed, the timing of the movement, the initial positioning. Because um, you can easily pick up bad habits as you can pick up good habits. And, you know, I think when you look at our goal against Stanford, um, to me that was kind of a example of, you know, basically what patterns can do. Not that we plan a 34-pass goal, but I think <laughs> the movements and the rotations that you go through on a weekly basis kind of ingrain in them, knowing, all right, this person has the ball, you know, I can go here. This person goes here, you know, you come here. Um, you know, and a lot of times people always want to say, hey, let's talk during games. In training, a lot of times they tell our guys not to talk. Um, get your head up, read body language, right? It's eye contact. So when, you know, a guy looks at you, then you know, hey, maybe this is the time to check. Um, if a guy's running in behind and wants the ball in space, then he's going to run away from you. you got to play him into space. Get your head up, read the body language, read the movements, and then add the talk at the end, right? You know, so you don't just use talk to bail you out. Um, one of my things I always tell my assistants is please do not get on a player who doesn't tell someone else to turn. If I'm a midfielder and someone has to tell me to look over my shoulder and turn, I'm not a very good midfielder. Let's let them learn some of these lessons by giving some balls away in practice because he doesn't check his shoulders, he doesn't have his awareness. All right. And then at the end, you know, if we need to, yeah, great. Let's help our teammate by telling them turn. But in terms of, for me, development, you know, I shouldn't need someone to tell me what space I have around me. I should be studying that and looking at that throughout the game. And I should know that before I get the ball. I love that you're, that you're bringing this stuff up, Jared, because it's, it's stuff that coaches need to hear and it's stuff that they won't ever hear in a traditional coaching education course like that like what you just mentioned is would be like a, a, an instructor would get laughed out of the room probably if uh if, if that was like a d license course or something like that like you're going to tell me not to, to tell my players not to talk what um but it, it but it's so true and and communication can happen in a number of different ways and and even just the way that a player plays a pass to a midfielder is communication like if they're playing it to their right Absolutely. foot it means it means they're telling them hey you know, turn to your right or, or the next play should be going to your right. But when it's, when you have that structure behind everything and the patterns behind everything, the ideas behind everything, that's the context that, that a player needs in order to understand that communication. But if there's no framework behind how you want to play, then there's, then, then there's no, like, like that pass means nothing. 
but yeah. with the patterns and, 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 and the ideas behind all that stuff, a pass means a lot more. So uh, I'm, I'm super stoked that you brought that up. Yeah. I mean, I think for us, defensively communication is key. Um, that's why I emphasize it more, but, uh, no, I just think, you know, you get – I just don't like uh, players not being accountable, right? And if you get on people for telling them not to turn, well, why don't you tell me I had someone on me? Then you just start to get dysfunction. Um, to me, I just – something I, as I've been in this game, it's – and I played in the midfield, so um, I would always be like, look, if I turn into somebody, it's my fault. I just think, uh, you know, some of these things with with people and how you build teams, and you know, uh, I just go back to this. I tell my players all the time. This. So you guys, when we do scouting reports, when we do build-up play, you guys want more answers to the game, you know, and how we're going to do it, more answers to the questions. You know, if we know what we're going to do before they know how to stop us, then we have the advantage. And, um you know, we really struggle sometimes going direct because I just don't like, um, you know, sometimes. And, and when I mean direct, I mean just uh, unplanned balls where you're just kind of hoping, you know, we all talk about big balls into the nine or big switches. Um, but we try to explain the purpose of those within how we do it. But, uh, yeah, I just like to have control, you know. All those things go to help you get it. Did – your style of coaching change after Caleb left and you took, you took total control of the program. You know, I think, uh, the, the philosophy is still there. Does every team play it the same way? No, because you got to adjust to some of the strengths your players have and you need to put them in spots to be successful. So, um, you know, sometimes we pull the fullbacks, both fullbacks high. You know, sometimes we, we don't. We keep one back or we, we rotate for more security and counterattack. I think uh, as the game evolves, you as a coach have to continue to evolve your, your philosophy. Um, you know, you can't be stubborn. I think once you get stubborn, you're you're in trouble. So you got to continue, I think, to look at doing the things. So I would say mine has the philosophy of what I want to do, fill out of the back. Uh, control the game with possession and, and pressure. Those are still ideally what I'd love to have all my teams do. Um, but I, at some point, have to determine, you know, are my teams capable of doing that at a high level? Do I need to adjust the press a little bit? Uh, do I have to, you know, adjust the build up so we can implement that plan and it maybe not look as one year it may look awesome attacking other years it may look a little bit more patient and, you know, we win games 1-0 because we have 65% of the ball and maybe tends to be boring, but um, both teams needed to, needed to have the ball 65% to win the game, you know? Mm-hmm. Hey, sit tight. We are going to hear a quick message from our sponsor, Bounce Athletics. It's a part-time DOC. I had a budget and, you know, we needed training gear every year and it just was getting more and more difficult to find decent, high quality, affordable training balls. That's Zach. He's the co-founder of Bounce Athletics. And as a coach, he was having a hard time finding quality soccer balls at an affordable price. 
So he started searching for ways to solve that problem for himself and for others. We've been able to experiment with a lot of different textured materials and construction methods. And, and I think we've really got it dialed in to, to where now, you know, with, with our training balls, we're providing super high level training balls that have all the modern technology in them for a fraction of the price of global brands. Zach and Bounce Athletics are offering 343 members and listeners 10% off orders of those custom premium soccer balls that he was just talking about. If you are hosting a soccer camp this summer and you want to get 10% off camp balls with free shipping and receive everything by May, just place your order with Bounce Athletics by February 15th. Email info at bounceathletics.com to start the order process and be sure to mention 343 to receive your 10% discount. All right, let's get back to the show. I think this question is, is can can potentially lead us in a different direction, but... I'm, I'm, I want to know what some of, what are some of the problems that, that you encounter in trying to bring that identity out every single year? And, and when I say, you know, this could lead us in a different direction, this could, you know, take us to practice time, this could take us to recruiting, this could take us to just the NCAA just structure in general, um, or it, it could keep us in, in the same way that the conversation has been the last, you know, 20 minutes or so, which is, you know, the training and, and on the field stuff, but what are some of the problems? What are some of the, the big inhibitors that you know restrict you from uh, getting that that identity out of your players year after year after year? Or, I guess another way I could ask it is, you know, how do you get that out, out of your players year after year after year? Because you you've been very successful with it as well. Yeah, it's uh, it all goes to continuity. So when you um, the difficulty I think with the college game from a coach's point of view. Um, and it kind of goes into development is I'll start with the team August, like this year, August 8th, we'll work on our game and we'll develop and we'll end at December 13th. And then I'm going to lose players and add players. So now I have to go back through the process of figuring out what this next group is, you know, and you can't do that. Like in the pro ranks, all right, your season ends month or two you're going to lose players and game players but then you get them for six week preseason two months from what you just started we go through a whole spring season you know with just whoever didn't leave so you you know you figure out what that team does well and you continue to coach within your identity and philosophy but then you add you know in some cases eight to ten players and you have 16 days to figure it out my teams, as you know, that's never really start fast because uh, we're trying to work through the identity and the philosophy. I'm trying to figure out how to put it together the best way. Um, and we always do well late in the year because we've, we figure it out. But I always wondered, hey, if I could keep that group, you know, instead of this year, I was sitting on December 13th. If I had that group until June, whatever, if the Final Four was there and I had them for nine months, how much better could they be individually and collectively? How much better can we look as a team? Um, instead, you got to do that in a four-month period with maybe one, two great training sessions a week if you're lucky. And I think that's where everybody's kind of frustrated with college is, uh, you know, the lack of time to train and develop styles of play or to develop players, you know, um, the springtime, I actually 
you know, I wish we had more games, but you do have the time to train and train them hard and develop them um, from an individual standpoint. You know, obviously you, you don't have as many competitive games as you want, but you do get some time to really, you know, work on these guys individually. Now, if, if I'm not mistaken, your uh, your opponent in the in the NCAA final, he's very vocal about this subject, and and he's you know he's he's on the record saying that he wants a, a, a you know a, a change to the NCAA schedule, and uh, I'm curious. Uh, it, it sounds like you're in favor of that as well, but I'm curious if if you've been as vocal as as Sarovsky has um, when it when it comes to that topic. Yeah, I mean he's he's been our leader in terms of outwardly. You know, we've done a lot. Like stuff I'll do would be in and around our conference with our administrators. Like every coach wants this full season, or at least every uh, serious coach. Um, but at the end of the day, we're, we're having to convince people that don't necessarily have the love of the game. We do. College is still about football and basketball. Um, and that's what everyone kind of on the athletic side, career is made off of. If you're an administrator, is the money sports. So we haven't proven to, you know, move the needle financially for institutions. Um, so they don't really want to be bothered by our you know, basically causes, which this makes a lot of sense in terms of betterment for the college game, betterment for the athletes, you know, especially health-wise, um, all this, but we're struggling to convince administrators that, you know, it's really necessary. You just don't have many that are soccer people. I thought that just popped into my head is comparing, you know, the eventual salaries of players that come through a program. So like say you look at Nagby and Yedlin and some of the other guys that were on that team, what was that like 2010 ish somewhere around there, 2011. Um, and, and look at the, the money that they've, they've brought in from the, for themselves and all the contracts and, and the trajectory that they've taken to the top of, of American soccer and compare that with some of the other, you know, high performing athletes from these other programs, baseball, basketball, football, yeah. And use that as kind of like a, a, a way to break through to these ADs. Like, hey, guys, like out of the 24 people that we had on our team, you know, three of them are on the national team and, you know, two of them are, are you know, super high earners. Like, that's pretty remarkable. Where 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 are the best football players right now from that same class? Yeah, I, I agree. And that's, we've been able to use that at Akron to kind of continue to get support for our program, you know, in terms of, uh, budgets, uh, resources, obviously coaches' salaries. Um, Important. You know, but it hasn't really, you know, if it doesn't go in the athletic department bank account, sometimes it's, you know, it's nice, but it's not maybe moving initiatives like we're trying to do, like Sasha's pushing. Hasn't really done that. I mean, I, I tried to tell them, look, if, if America was like the rest of the world in soccer with all these guys when they turned pro, we'd get a piece of the money and you guys wouldn't even have to worry about funding us. We could fund ourselves <laughs> with the players we've turned out. But as you know, with the American system, that's not how it works. Um, you know, we actually, during the other things, 
had someone inquire about sending us money for him. We're like, well, we can't, we can't take it. Really? That's, that's so, interesting. So like somebody, like a, yeah. like another party reached out to you guys. Yeah. Wow. So, um, you know, I imagine if we were able to, and us and the Maryland's and the wakes and all that, that constantly turn up pros in Indiana's, we were able to get some of those training compensation fees. The administrations would look a heck of a lot different at, you know, our game at the college level, um, you know, because we, we all would be bringing in pretty good money and probably be self-sustaining for the most part. Yeah, so. and it, it, it's always interesting to me when you would apply or when I apply, you know, soccer logic to other sports as well. And just imagine if, if that applied in, in football or if that applied in baseball, if that applied in basketball, where, you know, Akron would be getting these huge returns on players that developed or spent time at their, at their facilities or at their, at their university, like that would be a game changer. And if, you know, athletic directors could see, you know, how much more money is being left on the table, um, in, in American sports. Like, oh my gosh, like, I, I feel like that would be an absolute game changer. But, yeah, I, I agree with you on that. It, it, and, and I understand that it comes down to, you know, the, the dollars and cents. But, you know, if, if we really want to talk dollars and cents, it's like we're leaving so many dollars on the table in, in all aspects of American sports, all aspects. Yeah. And, 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 you know, to think that, you know, the argument is about paying players in, in college is you know absurd because that you know their player salaries would become like fraction of yeah. of what the total you know ecosystem would be generating at that point yeah i've always said what what colleges should, they should stop with the uh amateurism and the ncaa stuff and just say hey you want to sponsor a pro team you sponsor a pro team if you want to pay them through real money or you want to pay them through tuition discounts and that, that's their means um, and then you just get rid of all these eligibility things and be like hey University of Akron we're going to join the USL and then now we can develop players and I can go to a kid and say hey I'll give you a full scholarship I ain't going to give you any money you'll have your you know obviously your living and your food um, you play maybe if I want one of these old Akron guys, when they're done playing and they're 30, when they come back to Metro, maybe I just offer them 60000 you know, dollars to come and play in the USL. And I think that would be the best way. That's never going to happen, but <laughs> that's, what I, that's what I think. With all the money in the sports and all the problems you had with the basketball and, you know, the, the potential, you know, all the money that the schools are making off that, I think, you know, eventually we should just go that path and then, we don't have to have this academic sport fight like they, you know, they don't have that in Europe. And I, and I think our biggest problem here in America is that majority of the people don't understand how soccer works globally, how they do a business side as well. And, you know, uh, biggest question I always get is how many nationals I have, but, but they have some because soccer is a global game and there's global competition. American guys have to, eventually embrace that they're competing with people across the world, not only for professional jobs and money, they're, you know, academic scholarships, you know, let's just embrace the competition and all this. And, you know, 
that's, that's how it's got to work. And, but administrators don't really understand a lot of that. So um, we always get a roadblock when we try to, you know, almost years. Like if the Yankees could sell a sponsor on the front of their jersey, I mean, they'd make, you know, I couldn't fathom how much somebody would pay to have their sponsor on there. I mean, I agree with you. They're leaving a lot on the table, but they don't want to change the whole structure, you know, because the money just to stay with the with the few. Yep. Yep, and that's uh, that's what it always kind of comes down to is if it stays, you know, with the few, that's that's where the power stays then too. But if you open that up, and more people are, have the opportunity to make that same amount or more money, then the 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 power kind of shifts in a, in a way that wouldn't be conducive to how they want to do or how they've done business in the past, which is unfortunate that they think that way. I think. But yeah. what what do you think? Uh, I get uh, people are like, well, why don't we just do a Belgian done? You know, they kind of organize the whole coaching education and teach a certain style of play. Iceland's been that. I was like, um, why can't we do that in America? You know, your thoughts, my thoughts is the country's too big to organize, too much travel, too hard to do it. Um, America should really embrace what it is. It's just competition. You know, we're also competitive people and um, very competitive. That's always been one of our strengths. And if we want to be great at soccer, the best way is uh, just open it up, let people compete, you know, let people run clubs, let people figure out how to do it. And then at the end of the day, if we want to hire a guy that, that plays attractive possession style, there's going to be enough clubs out there in the country that do it that he can pull his style of guys. If we have people that want to, you know, press and be a little bit more quick counters, we'll have enough teams that do that. Um, you know, take advantage of our competitiveness rather than, you know, I think what they do at these coaching courses sometimes is try to tell people the way to play. And I'm not so sure that's the best, even though I have a specific way of playing. I think the other styles bring out the best in my system. If I don't have the other styles, then, you know, sometimes it's not as fun. The first thing that comes to mind when you, when you mentioned that is something that Eric Winalda brought up when I interviewed him. And... It's about the the differences in our country that just naturally exist. Like, you know, there's a different culture, a different flavor in Miami than there is in Des Moines. And there's a different flavor in Seattle than there is in Phoenix. And we should not kid ourselves in thinking that everybody can be this big, uniform uh you know, same style of play. And we shouldn't want that either, to be honest. Like, like that would be very vanilla if everybody from coast to coast was playing the same exact way. And like you, like you mentioned, we're, we're, we're too big to expect that. And Iceland is, you know, a very good example of, you know, a small, very small group of people that are able to do that probably because of, you know, like their geographics and their demographics and you know just their population whatever right um but but you know it's more it's it's more realistic to think that you can get los angeles to play one similar style of soccer versus you know california so um and and i I I agree with that yeah I, i i like what you mentioned too about yeah you know 
the American way is, is a competition of ideas. Like I have, I have a way that I want to do it and somebody else has a way that they want to do it and we should both be able to do it and, and, you know, and compete against each other and, and whoever wins wins. Like that's the American way. Yeah. And, and we shouldn't be ashamed of that. I think like in some ways, I don't understand why, but in soccer specifically, I get like, I, I get like this sense of shame being thrown at me for wanting to compete against people. And I, I'm like, what yeah. the, like, what the hell? Like this is, this is American soccer. It's America. You should want to fight. You should, you should want to, you know, tooth and nail and, and just, you know, brawl with people to, to the top and try to be the best. But in American soccer, it's like, nah, like let's just hold hands. And, and just kind of, you know, just chill here at the bottom. No big deal. I'm like, what? Like, you people are crazy. Yeah, I agree with you. It's frustrating, man. <laughs> um, all right, we're 45 minutes in, and we're also 15 minutes away from, from kickoff from Premier League, and I wanted to make sure that we both get a chance to watch that, so. <laughs> all right. Um, anything that, anything that you still got on, on your mind that you, that you kind of wanted to, you know, that you wanted to touch on today? I know that we were texting last night and you're like, Oh, I don't want to get in trouble, but that kind of led me to believe that you maybe had something you wanted to talk about. I don't know if it was that last little bit, but I want to make sure I open oh, it up the only to time you. you. Yeah. The only time you get in trouble is if, uh, when you start to go down that path with the song, <laughs> with training conversation, player development, how it should be working in America. Um, you know, um, I guess my biggest complaint to people is when they, uh, criticize college soccer, I guess this is what I'm going to protest, criticize college soccer. I'm like, well, we have our issues, but in the grand scheme of things, if our goal is to win a world cup, college soccer isn't necessarily, shouldn't be a talking point. You know, we'll, we'll do what we always done and sometimes turn out some players will develop some kids that mature late and push them and be roster management to the MSL, MLS. But if you're talking about winning World Cup, I mean, you know, we shouldn't even be part of the conversation. And if anybody wants to say, hey, the country ain't on the right path to the college soccer, they're not. Um, in my opinion, that's the Biggest thing, if you want to win the World Cup, you got to get more guys playing first-team minutes and helping their first-team win when the kids are 18, 19, and 20. Um, you know, the kids aren't good enough or need different times of maturity. Why wouldn't the kid pursue an education? I do think your career earnings with a degree is still going to be better than your career earnings as a player unless you make it to the top. So, you know, you can't fault kids for pursuing that path if teams ain't offering them hundred thousand dollars to play as an eighteen year old, that means they probably don't think they're gonna help them win. Jeez, so, a hundred thousand dollars would be a gift from the gods. Yeah, 18. I just so I know I see all these people on Twitter like they start bashing college soccer. I just you know, I stay out of it sometimes just to keep myself from getting in trouble. But look, we gotta we're doing better, we gotta continue the path trying to push kids to play you know, develop them so they're ready to play when they're 18, 17, 19, you know, for the Galaxy. You know, I know there's always kids that probably deserve a chance that don't get it, but still, at the end of the day, when you coach the first team in the league, you just have to win games, um, you know, especially in America where you don't have the training compensation stuff. 
so it's a little bit harder to have a goal to play kids and sell them for your business. That's not really a, uh, that hasn't really been a business model used a whole lot yet in America. So I think that maybe a couple of teams go down that path, but if we can do that, I think when you look at France, you know, you look at their starting lineup, I, I didn't do that type of homework, but I imagine, you know, a good 80% of those guys were playing first team minutes when they were 18, 19 or 20 in their top league. And that, that's the key. Those are the guys that can develop into winning games at the highest level and winning the World Cup. Um, if your goal is just to make the league better or have more players, well, that's a different conversation uh, in terms of whether kids should go to school or not. Um, but at the end of the day, right now the lower leagues don't, you know, spend enough money in them. You know, so you're asking kids to, you know, make a difficult decision and. You know, I think U.S. soccer should spend a lot of time trying to figure out how to grow the investment in the lower leagues and encourage, you know, those wages to go up. And then you can continue to encourage kids to maybe take a chance when they're 16 and, and sign. Um, you know, we've got to have more clubs for kids to have opportunities that, you know, USL is a tough, tough league to stay in it financially as a player if you don't move up quickly. Yep. I usually end my interviews by asking people what do what do soccer fans or, or soccer coaches or players need to know, but what you what you just said right there is I think you know probably the best answer if I were to have, have asked that question right before you you started to talk about that stuff because I think that's super important for everybody to know all that stuff you just said. Yeah, and that's that's what's not always getting out there, but, um, you know, I'm hopeful, you know, seeing all these kids go to, uh, Germany and I tell people, you know, it's not like, uh, college is upset that Pulisic's having a great career and then come to college, you know, we're, <laughs> we're, we're happy. We're, we like that. We understand that, you know, ideally we, we should be able to look at a kid. I should be able to go to these Academy showcases and playoffs and, be a really talented kid and say, all right, I'd love to have him. But if that kid doesn't get an opportunity, then something's wrong. You know, like uh, some of my favorite players are in my staff. It's like, let's watch the Galaxy. We watch, you know, everybody knows those guys now. Afrin, um, Mendez, uh, Juanes. And I was like, yeah, add those guys to our list. Okay, something stupid happens and they're still available. Um, <laughs> but you know, when you watch those guys and guys like Pulisic, when I saw him as a freshman for K Classics, I'm like, you know, I want to let him down. And if someone tells me he's still available a little bit later, I'll be happy to recruit the kid. But I don't think I should waste my time. I think that kid's going to be playing at a better level. Um, and we're not upset. There's plenty of kids that play. That need an opportunity, need a school, need time to mature physically or emotionally or socially, have a chance of making it because uh, it's not about talent. It's about psychology, you know, some of these things that you get to the next level. The dog-eat-dog world, once you become a pro, and you need some help. Some kids at 18 aren't ready to do that. That's where we can maybe help a couple kids. Absolutely. Dude, I, I need to get you back on, and we need to talk about about recruiting because I th I feel like we could talk for another hour about what you just mentioned about 
you know, your recruiting process and, and how you can kind of see like, Hey, like, you know, these are top one, two, three, four players on the field, but maybe it's not realistic for me to think that I can, you know, acquire all, uh, you know, those players. So maybe I'm looking at five, six, seven, eight best player on the field. Um, I, I don't know if that's your mentality, but I would love to kind of pick you apart about the yeah. recruiting process yeah. someday. Yeah. Anytime. All right, man. Um, well, I appreciate I appreciate you setting aside some time, and and I I, I honestly really would like to to get you back and, and maybe maybe talk about a couple more topics, um, and and just you know dive dive deep on 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 you know one or two things. Sure. Yeah. Just let me know. Be happy to love. I love talking. As you know, I could have probably gone on for another hour. All right. Thank you for listening to another episode of the 343 podcast. And a big thank you to our sponsor, Bounce Athletics. I also want to leave you with one note from one of our members of the 343 coaching education program. His name is Thomas, and he's been a member for quite a while. And this is what he had to say. If you want to play insanely good with your team and start to understand the possession and positional game, this will give you a head start. I have tried the material on three ordinary teams, and after a year, they totally dominate the local teams. After two years, they are among the best in the region. The program 343 offers is not a complicated curriculum. It's actually simpler than you might think. But instead of more, you have to go deep in every detail. Thomas, thank you so much for that beautiful review, and I hope that everybody else finds that valuable. If you want more information about the 343 Coaching Education Program, the program that helps support and fund this podcast, you can visit 343coaching.com. All right, we'll catch you guys next time here on the podcast. Thank you so much for listening.